0: beige with public. And today our guest is Adam Zivo. He's a weekly columnist for Canada's National Post. Like the U.S., Canada is in the grips of a deadly overdose epidemic. In May, Adam broke an incredible story about Canada's safer supply drug policy. His in-depth reporting exposed the shoddy evidence used to bolster an ideologically driven program which is fueling illicit sales and use and dragging a whole new generation into the deadly crisis. We discussed that in depth in our interview, but we spoke with him again yesterday after the tragic news that a prominent Vancouver drug legalization and safe supply advocate had died of a suspected fentanyl overdose. So this is a podcast in two parts. Adam helps us make sense of the headlines and move past the propaganda to understand how Canada's drug policy is actually impacting its citizens. I know you're a columnist of the National Post and you're from Toronto, right? Yes. Okay, and how did you end up in Ukraine?
1: Well, um, I had been a columnist for about a year and I had a day job as a corporate copywriter. And in my 20s, I had been a social activist and I had done an LJ campaign. I did COVID food relief. And in the corporate world, I felt unfulfilled. Uh, I felt like there was a lack of meaning in my life. And when the war in Ukraine began, I was sitting on my couch a few days afterwards. And I thought to myself, I have to do something, you know, I can only do so much as a columnist for this paper, uh, while in Toronto, but it's not enough. And so I called my boss and I said, Hey, can I use my vacation days? Uh, next week, and just fly to Poland. And that's what I did. <laughs> um, so I flew to Poland and I told my family I'd only be in Warsaw. And then I ended up going to the border. And then I told my family that I wouldn't go into Ukraine. And then I went <laughs> into Ukraine. <laughs> um, and I spent a day in Ukraine in Lviv. And it was one of the most beautiful cities I had ever seen. And I promised myself that I would come back and report on the country more thoroughly. So about a month after I came back to Ukraine for a two month trip, Uh, I asked my workplace, my day job, if I could work remotely during that time. They said no. So I handed in my resignation and I spent two weeks touring the country Uh, all throughout it, you know, from the west to the center to the east. I got shelled in Kharkiv, which was stressful. Um, And in my final week, I was in Odessa, and I was waiting to go to the city called Nikolai, which was on the front line at the time. And I couldn't get there. I couldn't get permission because I had only a bulletproof vest, but not a helmet with me. And so I had a week free and I ended up just, you know, hanging out and I met my partner at the time. Well, I I met this guy. um, So you fell in love
0: in a war zone, basically?
1: yeah you know what happens
0: (laughs) dramatic
1: (laughs) yeah no so it was it was it was a beautiful experience and Mm -hmm. and i saw him every day and he was the most lovely person i've ever met and on the final day i said i don't know if i'm going to see you again but this time that i've spent with you i've cherished so much and i told him not to wait for me um And then lo and behold i came back to ukraine two months later and we moved in together
0: wow i see i see like a a movie deal in your future
1: it would be interesting i mean you've had some (laughs) very fascinating experiences we spent we spent the winter together you know in a in a city where there was no electricity most of the time right so we had electricity maybe six to nine hours a day in three-hour blocks that were not predictable so you know it would be 9 p.m we wouldn't have electricity all day and then suddenly all our electronics would turn on and we'd be like charge everything and we'd go and plug (laughs) everything in um but we had each other which was nice uh especially in the nights when there were missile strikes and you could hear the explosions which you know we got used to but obviously it's it's not optimal (laughs)
0: And you'd never experienced anything like that before, I guess. You're, you're from Canada. You've just lived in Canada.
1: Yeah, in I mean, this was all very new to me. I, I sort of just showed up in Ukraine. Um, and most, you know, people, most reporters who are on staff, I'm not on staff, but, you know, many of these reporters, they have security and they have fixers. Uh, but there's a large group of freelance reporters like myself who just go there and then you just rent an Airbnb. Like in Kharkiv, which was being shelled every single day when I was there last May, uh, May 2022, um, you could get an Airbnb.
0: Well, tell me how you got involved in reporting on the drug crisis in Canada.
1: So Toronto has had a problem with homelessness. Uh, I mean, it's a longstanding problem, but it got a lot worse during COVID as it did for many cities in North America. And I lived in the gay village, which historically has been an economically distressed area with a lot of crime and a encampment popped up just beside where I lived. And it was awful. It was really awful. My balcony overlooked it. I'd hear people fighting all the time, violence. Uh, I would tell you know my friends to not exit from certain doors because people were tweaking out. I had people close to me be assaulted. Uh, I didn't feel safe sometimes and you know, I'm a bigger guy. And so I wrote about that. And as I began to write about crime, that became somewhat of my beat at the newspaper. And last autumn, I wrote about uh, this issue again, but in the context of Vancouver, and a local doctor by the name of Dr. Julian Summers reached out to me. And he had concerns about safer supply, because he had done an evaluation. Of safer supply research and found that most of the research was flimsy and insubstantial and he had been harassed into silence because of that and censored so i wrote an article about that which came out january 2nd and after that i ended up connecting with you know over a dozen addiction experts at that time uh, who spilled the beans on what a disaster this program has actually been
0: When it comes to the worsening opioid crisis, the Canadian government's official narrative is that toxic supply is responsible for overdose deaths, and the solution is safer supply. But you've reported in depth, you had a 10,000-word article right, on this policy approach, and you make the argument that it's failing and making the crisis worse. Um, Can you take us into your reporting and tell us what you found, including from the government's own data?
1: Sure. I mean, so just to summarize the whole issue, uh, Safer Supply is the strategy that attempts to dissuade drug users from taking potentially tainted illicit substances by providing them with free government-funded alternatives. Uh, So when it comes to opioids, that means giving them pharmaceutical opioids, typically something called hydromorphone, which is a drug that is as potent as heroin. So the government claims that this reduces overdoses and it reduces deaths. But what I learned is that a significant portion, if not like the vast majority of the hydromorphone given away for free by the government is actually sold on the streets so that drug users can purchase fentanyl. And the reason why this happens is that though hydromorphone is as powerful as heroin, it's only one tenth as strong as fentanyl. So for a fentanyl user who has a very high drug tolerance, hydromorphone almost invariably fails to get them high. So it's not a drug that they want to use. So they'll take just enough so they can pass urine tests, and then they'll sell the rest. And they'll sell it at dirt cheap prices because it's free and because everyone else is selling it. As a result, uh, addiction physicians in five different cities, now six different cities, because I just spoke with someone else earlier this week, Mm. uh, have verified that the street price of hydromorphone has collapsed by 70 to 95% in cities where safer supply programs are present. Now, we have to keep in mind that hydromorphone is not being sold to, you know, hardcore drug users because they can already get it for free and they have high opioid tolerances. So the drug is not really suitable for them. It's being primarily sold to people who are opioid naive or who have not been using opioids for a while. So what that means is that it's going to youth and it's going to people who are in recovery. So it's been creating this new wave of addiction that has been particularly disastrous for young people. And the government is aware of this to some extent. Uh, a twenty-two a report from March 2022 acknowledges the problem that hydromorphone doesn't actually get fentanyl users high. But outside of that, the federal government and the British Columbia government, British Columbia is our western province here, um, they're denying that there's a problem. And they seem to be misrepresenting the evidence base for this program to the public.
0: I did read somewhere that although the majority of overdose deaths tend to happen in uh, middle-aged men, that the fastest growing group or one of the fastest growing demographics of people experiencing severe overdoses is you know, youth demographic. So why is this so consequential in light of that?
1: Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think that it's always consequential when youth are pulled into addiction and have their lives ruined. We see that overdose deaths are only increasing in Canada. And Mm. it's a crisis that needs to be addressed. And it needs to be addressed with real solutions, not quasi solutions like safer supply. Um, You know, all across North America, people are scrambling to fix the opioid crisis. And the people who I spoke with, you know, I spoke with, at this point, I've spoken with over 20 addiction medicine experts. You know, we all acknowledge that harm reduction is needed, whatever that looks like, and that a solution is needed, but this particular intervention is just not effective.
0: What else do you think is crucial for people to understand about Canada's approach at this point?
1: Well, so I'm going to talk about two different things here. So the first thing is that the debate about safer supply shows how science can be deeply politicized and misrepresented. So the federal government in Canada insists that Safer Supply is an evidence-based policy. And they accuse their critics of not listening to the science and basically uh, spreading misinformation. That's not accurate. And addiction physicians have repeatedly emphasized that this program is highly experimental and has no real evidence base. When you look at the evidence, or I guess quote-unquote evidence, in support of Safer Supply, Uh, it can fall into three broad categories all of which have significant issues so the majority of the studies that support safer supply are qualitative studies which means that they don't crunch numbers they're based on semi-structured interviews Mm -hmm. and who was interviewed for these studies well it's vancouver-based drug users so these studies essentially you know end up interviewing about 20 to 30 vancouver-based drug users about safer supply and surprise, surprise, the drug users think that it's that, that it's an amazing program. And, and no attempt is made in these studies to check for bias or for accuracy. So they just treat, you know, they frame this study as an objective assessment of the program's outcomes. Uh, qualitative studies like this are the weakest possible studies that you can produce in healthcare. Uh, they would be unacceptable in any other high-level medical intervention. But for some reason, the federal government believes that this is solid evidence and is trying to convince the public, which doesn't know better, that it is. Now, the second piece is qualitative studies, sorry, quantitative studies, which, are, which rely on self-reported data. So uh, in Vancouver, they have a survey that comes out, the VITAS survey and the ARI survey. These surveys are given to drug users and at-risk youth. And uh, you can crunch those numbers, but fundamentally that is self-reported. And self-reported data you know is always going to have a level of bias Mm -hmm. so that is also not reliable and then the third piece is that you have some studies that are more recent which rely on more objective data Uh, a new study came out last year that used ontario's administrative health data but here's the problem safer supply programs they don't just give out free hydromorphone They also provide patients with access to additional support systems like specialized medical teams, social supports, housing supports. And so these studies, which use more objective data, make no attempt to distinguish, or sorry, to investigate whether positive outcomes come from the free hydromorphone or from all of the other things that are given to these program participants. And, you know, it would be obvious that you would want to try to figure out what is contributing to these positive outcomes? But the researchers just aren't doing that, which to me suggests either incompetence or politicization.
0: And you really are going against the official government narrative here, because this narrative is in—it's in every press release. It's—it seems to be filtered through, you know, most of the media in Canada. Um, what does that? feel like it doesn't seem like it's fun to go against the official narrative in Canada.
1: <laughs> it's not fun. And I wish that I wasn't the primary reporter doing it. I mm. mean, yes, to a certain extent, you know, this is a bit of a journalist's dream, right? To get the scoop on a significant story. But from a moral perspective, I wish that more journalists were taking a more critical approach to this. And, and doing their jobs. I think a lot of reporters in Canada are not doing their jobs correctly when it comes to addictions policy. Uh, and it's not nice when you have, you know, the associate health minister accusing you of spreading disinformation. It's not nice when you have the chief coroner of, the, of British Columbia, uh, you know, uh, indirectly referencing you when they're condemning divisive or fear-based rhetoric. But most of my evidence comes from interviews with addiction medicine experts who are on the ground and witnessing this firsthand. Right. Right. And then the government and, you know, safer supply proponents have tried to dismiss this as anecdotal evidence. And they say, well, Mm -hmm. you know, what can we actually learn from that? Uh, But addiction physicians have pointed out that typically medical scandals are first noticed via anecdotal evidence, you know on the ground experts start to see these things. And then data is collected to measure the scale of the problem. But the government is just not doing that. Now, no matter how much criticism I get, I feel okay, because I constantly hear from addiction medicine experts, how they support my, my reporting. And they are appreciative of it. They're afraid to speak out because they feel like they're going to be subject to harassment or they're going to face professional retribution. But I know that in a year or two or three years, uh, I'll be vindicated and people will realize what a clusterfuck this whole thing has been.
0: Do you see the tide kind of turning already a little bit?
1: Yes. And, um, <laughs> there's some things that like, okay, so for example, after my report came out, uh, the conservative government, uh, tried to pass a motion to defund safer supply and put that money into treatment and recovery. Uh, that didn't pass because the conservatives didn't have the votes. You know, they're an opposition party. Uh, but the very fact that they were able to do that, you know, is very different from what they were able to do six months ago when that evidence base that i provided wasn't there. The BC government has, sorry, British Columbia government has initiated a review of the safer supply program and is now reviewing the distribution of hydromorphone, uh, just a few days ago the BC government also announced that they were going to begin funding opioid agonist therapy, which is a more traditional recovery-oriented system, sorry, treatments for everyone. So showing that they're moving away from you know fetishizing harm reduction to moving back towards treatment and recovery. Uh, I guess I'll give you a little bit of background here. Uh, so I had heard from a contact, and I can't verify this, uh, that after my report came out, that some high level officials in BC, I'm not going to name exactly who they are, had an emergency meeting, (laughs) uh, bringing together different stakeholders. And apparently they were scared shitless and they were worried that there would be some, you know, I guess, public inquiry into this at some point in the future. And they decided to shift towards a recovery oriented system. Uh, I had heard this, you know, about a month and a half ago, uh, obviously. It's just a rumor, so it's not something that I've been able to verify, which is why I don't include that in my reporting. But seeing the recent developments from BC and their shift in in their policies, to me suggests that people are listening and they're trying to get ahead of this damage before it blows up in their faces too much.
0: Can I ask you, what is going on with the vending machines?
1: Oh, my God. Okay.
0: (laughs) I need to know.
1: That is so <laughs> so so fucked up. Wait, am I allowed to swear?
0: <laughs> I think so. I don't
1: know. <laughs> okay, okay. That is <laughs> vending machines is a totally fucked up situation. So, essentially, um, in Canada we have opioid vending machines. There's about four of them. All of them located on the west coast, and they distribute safer supply hydromorphone um, to you know program participants. And, you know, supposedly it's a highly secure system. Uh, You have to have your hand scanned. Uh, it's not easy to tamper with the machines. They're more like ATMs. And the idea is to reduce the stigma of accessing safer supply and make it to make it more convenient. Now, back in January, uh, workers at a recovery center said that youth were accessing drugs from those, from those vending machines. And, you know, the owners of that company basically said, oh, you know, that's not true. Uh, It's very difficult to tamper with this. And, you know, anytime we see diversion happening of our drugs, it's just compassionate sharing to people who are sick, you know, friends and family. Um, That narrative- How would they know
0: that? How would they know that?
1: Well, because because their studies, the qualitative studies that I mentioned earlier, you know, that's Uh what the drug use is telling the researchers. They're saying, oh, you know, when we give out the drugs, it's just because we want to share with our friends. Um, and then the government takes that at face value, which is absurd. It's end of right. scene. Um, so, so the narratives used there were not accurate. And the main thing here is that it doesn't matter if the vending machines can't be tampered with, because the fact is that the the resale on the black market happens after the patient gets the drugs. So if the vending machines can't you know, prevent the person from selling the drugs after they receive it, then it's irresponsible. Right? So that was already an issue. And then after my big report came out, I started to find out even more things that were wrong with this whole system. So it turns out that the organization behind this, it's a nonprofit called my safe society. It it was founded by a guy named Mark Tyndall, who was one of the, uh, main drivers of safer supply and harm reduction policies in Canada. And, uh, in canada if you're a nonprofit organization and you receive over ten thousand dollars per year or if you've received over ten thousand dollars at any point you are obligated to file your financial reports with the government which are then made public so that there's some level of accountability um so my safe society did not file their financial reports and they never filed any of their you know necessary documents with the government so there's almost no transparency there you know. No member of the public, no journalist like myself can learn anything about the internal dynamics of this organization because they're not following federal law. Then I learned afterwards that they seem to have actually defrauded the government to some extent because uh, one of their one of their uh, directors from their initial board of directors is this woman named Dr. Andrea Serrata. And she's a big Safer Supply proponent. And she told me on Twitter that she has nothing to do with the organization. She's done no work with it. She hasn't seen any documents. And yet she's listed as a director. And she was listed as a director when they applied for funding. So they broke federal law. They falsely listed who was on their board of directors. And on top of that, and and this is a thing which I'll report on later, uh, the person who was evaluating the program for the government, this guy named Dr. Thomas Kerr, is close associates with Dr. Tyndall. So Dr. Thomas Kerr, who recently released an evaluation of the MySafe program, which once again was qualitative, just, you know, interviews, you know, praising this program, he's evaluating his friend's program. There's a conflict of interest there. And Dr. Thomas Kerr also faced serious allegations in the 2000s of having unresolved conflicts of interest and of falsifying research, research that, you know, falsely claimed that harm reduction initiatives were working when they were not.
0: Has there been any response to this?
1: The My Safe Society thing?
0: Yeah, you're reporting on the conflict of interest.
1: Um, So I haven't spoken with the government about the conflict of interest yet, but I've been emailing Health Canada. So that's our, I guess, like our health ministry, uh, more or less. And um, they don't want to do anything. You know, they basically said that they're not going to penalize My Safe Society. Uh, They've asked that, you know, there's be some rectification, but there's no accountability whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've been and they've been taking a really, really long time to answer my questions. To be honest, I feel a little bit stonewalled by them. So it seems like they're trying to minimize this damage as much mm-hmm. as possible. That is my interpretation of their response. And there's no accountability. Now, after I reported all of this, I was contacted by someone who was concerned because there's another nonprofit that is receiving a significant amount of funding from the federal government. Uh, to do Safer Supply based in Ottawa, that is doing the exact same thing. They falsely told the government that they made less than $10,000, giving the government the impression that uh, they don't have to file their financials, and then they never filed their financials, right? So that's another Safer Supply program, which is receiving millions of dollars and not meeting its legal obligations to be transparent about where the money is going.
0: I mean, that's a pattern at some point that can't be denied. So I imagine that there will be a public backlash and people will catch on to this, right?
1: I mean, we'll see. The problem here is that the Safer Supply people, they're really, really, really good at controlling the narrative to a certain extent, Mm
0: -hmm. right?
1: So they continue to insist that this is evidence-based and they're exploiting the public's scientific illiteracy and i know that sounds condescending but you know let's be honest a lot of people don't know how to evaluate the quality of scientific research so if they hear a whole bunch of high-level officials saying we have studies 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 they're all peer-reviewed saying that this all works you know most people are not going to look into those studies and realize that they're just interviews with vancouver-based drug users they're, they're not going to do that kind of you know research um on top of that the federal government has backed this so much that many addiction medicine experts are concerned about retaliation if they speak up about this. So, you know, I have at this point interviewed over 20 addiction medicine experts. Only half of them will go on record. They're mm-hmm. all consistently scared, uh, not only because they worry about being harassed by safer supply activists who try to blacklist critics or harass critics, they're concerned that they may lose access to grants. Or they may have their families retaliated against. One person who I spoke to, they had a relative who worked at a prominent nonprofit that receives federal funding. So there's a culture of fear.
0: Is there any fear of a threat to their license or investigations?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that level of fear is there. I mean, it, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. So they fear losing funding. Uh, when it comes to fear of losing, you know, their license or, or that level of, of uh, retaliation. Uh, that goes into another issue, which is that many of the things that they talk about are things that they aren't always able to share. And, and what I mean by that is just before this interview, for example, you know I got I was interviewing someone um, and they were sharing information with me uh, about what they were observing at a medical institute that they were working at um, but they, cannot go on record because what they observed and what they were telling me, you know, they're not allowed to disclose due to confidentiality agreements, right? Because Mm. these are patients. right? Um, So if they go on record, then there's the possibility they'll be reprimanded for breaking confidentiality. Uh, Or for example, many people have said, oh, you know, my reporting is, you know anecdotes of people talking about other people's experiences, so secondhand anecdotes. Because I'm not getting the stories directly from these patients, but uh, many of these addiction physicians, you know, they it would be unethical of them to to introduce me to their patients because then that applies a level of pressure to the patients to speak with the media, and also it might end up you know breaking their confidentiality as well. There are a lot of rules here. That mm-hmm. prevent people from being fully open about what they're seeing, which is why they have to speak to me off the record, which is frustrating. Um, but it is what it is for now.
0: And have you spoken to patients also? Are you trying to find people um, to fill in that part of the narrative as well?
1: It's difficult. Um, yeah. So I've read a lot of the testimonials that have been given to researchers uh, regarding safer supply. Now, I was in Ukraine up until last week, so I haven't been able to reach out to patients. Yeah. Um, I'm working on it. It's hard. Um, and it's not my main priority right now mm-hmm. because those patients have had opportunities to give lots and lots and lots of feedback via all the qualitative studies that have asked them for their opinions and thoughts. The other stakeholders not being listened to so i'm relying on those qualitative studies to some degree as an interim solution while i get all the other stakeholders and once Mm -hmm. I get all the other stakeholders and i can move on to doing my own interviews with these you know with these patients um one group of people that i'm really interested in speaking with but they're really hard to access are people who have you know substance use disorders who are going to treatments who think that safer supply is not helpful right because they see what it's doing to their communities um those kinds of people are not being listened to by the qualitative studies uh and by the safer supply researchers but they're also very difficult for me to access because you know i've asked these addiction physicians can i speak with these people and they say well i can't i'm i'm not permitted to introduce you um so the only solution for me would be to you know maybe go to uh, an area where there's rampant drug use and, you know, you know, go undercover or something like that. But then that puts me at, in risk, you know, I don't want to get stabbed in downtown Vancouver. Uh, (laughs) I would feel less safe going there, uh, than being in Eastern Ukraine, to be honest, if I was, you know, um, very open about what I was doing. And many of these people who are uh, homeless and addicted, and they don't like safe for supply, they're concerned about speaking out because they're on the street, they're vulnerable. So if you're disrupting a system where you know there's a lot of money flowing and there are gangs involved because gangs take this hydromorphone and they sell it all across the country and they sell it to the states too. You know you put yourself at risk no one wants to be, no one wants to have a target on their back by criticizing safe for supply while surviving on the streets. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.